on air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, the pressure on margins blamed for the collapse of a big trucking company. Well, most of the industry is operating on an average profit margin of 2.5%. Freight just cannot absorb any more cost, but the pressure keeps coming. So until these um, groups become serious about providing safe and sustainable services, then transport can't absorb the cost anymore. And urging more young women into ag science careers. To break the perceptions that currently exist, such as when people think about scientists, they think of someone like Albert Einstein, who is an older white male in a white lab coat. Most of us are not that. Got your lab coat on? A superstar of STEM coming up and what's behind the collapse of one of the biggest trucking companies in Australia. We'll look at that story shortly. G'day, Tony, with you on this Thursday, 2nd of March. We're in just a moment. We will look at a new way of fighting an age-old pest in apples. Also today, three new varieties of avocados for Australian growers. Bring it on. And do you have horses on your property? And if so, do you know how good or bad the pasture is for them? We'll look at that. Plenty more on a busy show today. We check the weather and take your thoughts on any issues via the text line 0438 922 936 is that number. 0438 922 936. Well, in a first for Australia's apple industry, three Tasmanian orchards are trialling insect fertility control to rid the industry of the major pest, codling moth. The insect is responsible for decimating apple harvest by directly attacking the fruit. Dr Sally Bound, lead researcher at the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture, says the team has released 700,000 sterile male moths over four months. Codling moth is a major pest because it damages the fruit rather than the leaves, so any fruit that it attacks is um, unsaleable. And orchardists can lose 50 to 90% of their fruit in a really bad year if, if control is not adequate. Can you so, explain to me what the public might see uh, from a codling moth on an apple? Um, they'll see little holes with little bits of what we call frass on, on the outside on the skin, and when they cut the apple open, they'll see tunnels through the apple and if the moth is still in there, sorry, if the grub is still in there, they'll obviously see the grub as well or the larva. And is codling moth much of a problem in Tasmania? Oh, yes, it's a pretty, pretty major problem in Tasmania. Some areas are worse than others. But, yes, it's a, it is a problem in all areas. And has it affected commercial quantities of fruit? Yes, it does. Um, in a bad year, as I said, it can you can have quite a high loss of of um, fruit. Well, tell me what you're planning to do. Um, well, we have been releasing this season, we've been releasing sterile moths on a weekly basis in three test orchards down in the Huon Valley. So we import our moths from Canada um, where they have a, a program where they rear the, the moths and, and sterilise them. Um, so we're importing from Canada and we release in the orchards. Uh, it can take most of the day to do the release. Um, so we're releasing around 3,000 sterile males per hectare. Over a period of time? Yes. Yeah, so we're going, we started the end of October and we went through to mid-February. 
So and weekly releases. So the program works by flooding the wild population with big numbers of sterile males, and obviously, this will reduce the number of fertile eggs. That's right. While the sterile males can still mate, obviously there's no progeny produced, so it, it reduces over time. It reduces the population in the wild. You wouldn't see any results yet. No, it's a bit early. Um, we're hoping we might start to see a drop off next season. We are repeating the process next season. So by the end of two years of releases, we're hoping that we'll be seeing some good results. And obviously, you've you've looked around the world at different projects. Um, have you seen this sterile coddling moth technology work elsewhere? Yes, it's working really well in um, Canada. They have around ninety four percent control and they've actually also managed to reduce their pesticide use for pesticides that they're using to control the coddling moth um, and they've reduced that by 96 percent which is which is a win-win situation for growers and the environment wow that's and, fantastic yeah and new zealand are also importing moths from Calen- from canada and they're very successful in new zealand as well so by the end of the second release you hope to see a significant reduction we are hoping it can take several years, so we've got our fingers crossed that we will be seeing results after year two. It's pretty amazing technology, and obviously Canada's at the forefront of this. Uh, yeah, I think it is. Yes, um, not unusual or, or for sort of sterile insect release programs to be undertaken. Well, in Australia, um, sterile insect technology is used for fruit fly. And that's been pretty successful here. And what happens now? It's obviously been a, a busy summer so far releasing these sterile moths. Uh, you still got a few more to release? Uh, we're finished for the season, but we are still monitoring. The, the life of the moths is, is probably 9 to 14 days after release. So we're monitoring until mid-March just to see um, what what's happening with the wild and the sterile populations. Okay. And these codling moths, moth, are they native to Tasmania? No, they were originally introduced. And were they introduced accidentally, do you know? Do you know the background there? I, I think it's like most pests. Yes, they come in on, on fruit before people were aware of quarantine issues. And where would they have come from? What sort of countries are they native in? Probably from Europe, um, England, places like that. How have uh, industry responded to this trial? Uh, Growers seem to be pretty enthusiastic about it. Um, Obviously, it's a pilot trial, so we have to see how the results go and whether the economics stack up as well. Does it cost much? It's not cheap to import from Canada, especially with the increases in freight Um, that have resulted after COVID. Um, But what we're hoping for is if it's successful, then perhaps we can get um, a facility in Australia that is able to rear them and sterilise them. How are they transported? How do they come? Um, They come in little cups like ice cream cups. There's probably a thousand moths per cup. They're packed cold so that they're dormant and they take a few hours to warm up once you release them and start flying. Certainly an ice cream cup that you don't want. Dr Sally Bound from the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture speaking there to Fiona Breen about releasing sterile male coddling moths to reduce the impact 
of the pest on the apple harvest. The National Road Transport Association is blaming the supermarkets for the collapse of Scott's refrigerated logistics. The trucking company has been put into administration, putting 1,500 jobs at risk. Administrator Cordamentha says there are plenty of interest from buyers, but Warren Clark, the CEO of the Transport Association, has told David Clawton the announcement was still a shock. It was complete shock to see a company of this size and this sort of standing actually uh, you know, go into voluntary administration. Um, I think really what came to my mind was the flow-on effect on how it's going to affect the the 1,500 people that, you know, potentially could lose their jobs, but not only that, the subcontractors that work for Scots and so forth. So it's a really big thing for the industry. What sort of impact is there in the freight sector broadly when a major player like this leaves? Well, what I think it shows is that it just shows the amount of pressure that's on transport and the freight sector, and that pressure's coming from the top, you know, the, the top supermarkets, etc. And what happens is that, you know, people will jostle for the work, people will pick up the work, but there's still going to be uh, disruptions to the freight chain and it's those disruptions that the consumers will feel right through the whole system. And you're saying it goes to the top because the unions were saying that too, that, that um, Scots were, were running some of the business for Coles, for Aldi as well, Woolworths is partially involved and they're saying the margins are too tight for freight companies, and we hear that in a lot of sectors. Do you believe that to be true in this case? Oh, look, 100%, that's where the pressure's coming from. You, you've got some of these guys, well, most of the industry is operating on an average profit margin of 2.5%. You know, gone are the days, freight just cannot cannot absorb any more costs, but the pressure keeps coming. So until these um, groups become serious about providing safe and sustainable services then transport can't absorb the cost anymore. It's just not there. And in the short term, Cordamentha are saying they're paying people to keep doing what they've been doing. But are you hearing of any sort of breakdown in, in operations at all? Is it impacting on farmers, for example, or, or, or food processes that might have refrigerated products that, that need to get somewhere? Look, they, they're doing a very good job of keeping it all going. Um, you know, it's in their best interest to make sure that it's as seamless as possible. Now, it needs to be, doesn't it? Because a lot of this stuff is perishable. Well, that's exactly right. So, refrigeration, cold storage—they'll have systems set up, and and it will, you know, it appear to be going, you know, great on the surface, a bit like a duck swimming. But make no mistake, and the sector is impacted by these types of guys going into liquidation. You know, the flow on to subcontractors. Scots will have a lot of subcontractors doing their work. You mean drivers, small small drivers yeah, with their own trucks? Small drivers. Yeah, they'll be hiring trailers from different groups. People are going to be impacted by this. There'll be subcontractors that you know, are worried about you know, what the future is for them. You know, do they stick with that contract? Do they move into another area? You know, does Coles come in and take it up and run it itself and kick everyone out of, out of work? You know what I mean? Like it's, there's a lot of uncertainty that's been created by this incident. Well, Cordamentha are saying they're inundated with inquiries and you think Coles might be seriously thinking about buying it themselves? Oh, look, I'm not privileged to that, but, you know, it, it would have to be entering their mind how they would um, secure up their, their freight chain. Um, you know, there's plenty of companies that can take over this work, but as you know, our industry is really struggling to find drivers. Uh, it's really fi- struggling to keep on top of the infrastructure, so it's a challenge. 
It was owned originally by Alan Scott, one of the great characters of the industry, and then sold to private equity group Anchorage for $75 million, uh, maybe just uh, two and a half years ago. Uh, and that was sold by Eagers Automotive. So uh, there's been quite a bit of shuffling in the last few years. Uh, what's the, what's the, what's the, what do you think it's, I mean, they've got, they've got facilities in all Australian mainland state capital cities, depots in many regional centres. What do you think it's worth now? Oh, look, that's up to your liquidator to determine that. They'll look at, you know, assets and they'll look at, um, you know, liabilities really, and they'll look at it as a going concern. But, you know, you, you've had a, a very successful company over the years, like, you know, Mr. Scott was a was a stalwart of the industry. He put a lot into the state industry. He ran a very productive business. But I think this is a, a catalyst to, for us to look at just how tight this industry is. And, you know, it's just a warning bell that industry can't keep absorbing the shocks that come at it. You know, I think they, they highlighted reasons of COVID, floods, roads, driver shortage, wage costs like... You know, where's it stopped? Really? Fuel costs. Fuel costs. Yeah, fuel costs is massive. And what are you saying then to the supermarket sector, or what are you saying to the government? You know, can 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 there be a regulated solution to this so that it's actually a bit easier for some of these sorts of companies dealing with the major well, supermarkets? No, I think it's hard to regulate the top end of town, but what we're saying is that you know enough's enough. You know, you, you just can't keep cutting the guts out of freight. Um, you know, you, you want supermarket shelves stocked, you want a safe environment for drivers and, and employers, and you want them to be sustainable. I mean, seriously, let's get real. Supermarkets will, I'm sure, say that they are doing everything they can to ensure the viability and sustainability of the businesses that they work with. Aldi has, has uh, strongly come out against those claims by the union from yesterday. So who's telling the truth about the issues there? Well, I mean, look, it's a very political debate, isn't it? It's not a new one. It's an old one. But, you know, I just ask you this. Who's got the most bargaining power? You know, if that freight company doesn't take it up, we'll just get someone else to do it. And that's the problem with it. People just do it. So, you know, we need to work as an industry to provide a sustainable future for the industry. It was shown through COVID that this country can't operate without a safe, sustainable industry. This is a shock, and we've got to keep working towards making it sustainable. That's Warren Clark, CEO of the National Road Transport Association, talking there to David Clawton about the collapse of Scott's refrigerated logistics. Aldi has rejected claims by the Transport Workers Union that supermarkets put pressure on the profit margins of freight companies. In a statement, they said the claims were categorically untrue, baseless and damaging. While a coal spokesperson has been reported as saying, we're aware of the challenges being faced by one of our transport providers. We're working hard to provide support and minimise the impacts this might have on our customers and product suppliers. Coming up, a beef producer talks about the carbon footprint of his farm. Be prepared for disruptions to the Tasman Bridge this Sunday morning, March 5th. The Run the Bridge Fun Run will be held Sunday morning between 6am and 10am. One lane of the bridge will be open for emergency service vehicles only. Expect disruptions and alterations to metro and airport bus services. Check timetables and plan ahead. And for updates, stay connected to ABC Radio Hobart.
the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Oh four three eight nine double two nine three six. Uh, David tells tells us there's a truck rollover at Montrose. Apparently, no one injured, but uh, traffic disruptions in the Montrose area. The Australian Livestock Exporters Council says the federal government's policy to end the live sheep trade sets an alarming precedent for all agricultural industries. Alex says this is a red line issue and the ag sector will unite to fight it. Mark Harvey Sutton is the council's CEO. The reason that it should be changed is because it sets an alarming precedent for all of agriculture. We've been talking to groups from right across the agricultural spectrum and they acknowledge the reform that the live sheep industry has gone through. And where they see this as a red line issue is the precedent that an industry can be shut down for purely political purposes. And that that alarms the industry. So which other industries are sort of uh, you're talking to and having those sort of concerns that, you know, if it can happen for one industry, it can certainly happen to another one down the track. Every livestock industry in Australia uh, the National Farmers Federation. This is, uh, it's been made very clear to me that this is a, a unity issue. Uh, we are unified as a sector on this because of that precedent. With your discussions with other agricultural industries, livestock industries, the National Farmers Federation, are you encouraging those groups to step forward and, and join the fight with you publicly, more publicly? Absolutely. And they will be. I can give you that assurance. Murray Watt made it pretty clear uh, in Senate estimates. I mean, he used the word, you know, the industry's lost its social licence and he's he's using language that very much uh, appears that the decision has been made and this transition is now underway. But still you see see some light there. Oh, look, the Minister has a commitment to carry out and uh, we've made it very clear to him that Despite that commitment that he has uh, and the the decision of Labor to carry forward this policy, we will be fighting against this policy. Uh, And the reason I say there's light at the end of the tunnel is because we have the facts on our side, Belinda. And, you know, I note those comments around social licence. The challenge with that is who determines what a social licence is? Where is the red line? Where is the point where that tips over and it becomes an issue that, you go, well, let's shut down an industry. You know, it's, it's very intangible. And this is what industries are worried about because there is no livestock industry, and I'm not meaning to gild the lily here, but there is no livestock industry in Australia or other agricultural industries that has had not had some form of social licence challenge. However, what industries must do is address those challenges in order to retain that social licence. Our industry has done that. Okay, so is legal action against the federal government a possibility further down the track if this proceeds? Look, we're not ruling out any option. As I've said, we will fight this policy all the way. So despite the fact that this advisory group or working group, whatever, to transition out of the live sheep trade is going to be announced any day now by the sounds of things, that doesn't deter you at all in your argument, your quest to see a future for this industry? I I always see a future for this industry. I wouldn't do this job if I didn't see a future for the industry. I believe in the industry. And the reason I believe in the industry is the results and the reform that the industry has seen. 
I mean, we have not had a reportable mortality incident since 2018. We are seeing record low mortality levels. And I know people will say, well, is mortality the best measure, but it's the most objective one that we have. And the performance of the industry has been simply outstanding. So to follow through with the policy like this sends a signal to all agricultural industries that you can do absolutely everything that is asked of you. You can reform, you can become the best in the world, but we will still shut you down because it's politically expedient to do so. And that, that's what troubles me. And no, I'm not deterred because we will, we will engage with that consultation process meaningfully. But the one thing that we will not be contemplating is a discussion about transition. And we will be utilising that consultation process to explain why this policy is wrong and why it's wrong for all of agriculture. That's Mark Harvey Sutton, CEO of the Australian Livestock Exporters Council, talking to Belinda Varischetti. He claims the federal government's policy to end the live sheep trade sets an alarming precedent for all agricultural industries. Well, there's lots of advice out there for farmers who want to start looking at their carbon emissions. As farmers already working in the carbon farming space in northeast Victoria, Gillian Carroll runs a seed stock business at Mudjigonga, 50 kilometres south of Wodonga, with 350 Angus females producing steers for the EU feedstock market. Before he went farming, Julia was an economist. Her loves crunching numbers. For the past two years, he's been calculating the carbon footprint of the farm as part of the monitoring project. He's planted trees over 17% of the total area of the property. Annie Brown spoke to him at a Victorian farming carbon, farming carbon conference to find out more. I guess in this whole carbon discussion, um, we still see the most important drivers to be our productivity and profitability and our sustainability. So uh, we've planted a lot of trees on the farm. We're up to about 17% of the total area on the farm that um, I've got the stats for today that we talk about. Uh, and we do that not to generate, um, you know, carbon credits or, or to sequester carbon specifically, but we do that for uh, biodiversity and protecting riparian zones and stock shelter, that sort of thing. So would you say uh, what you do on your farm is a bit more like insetting rather than offsetting, like what we've talked about here at the conference? Yeah, it, it is It is insetting, but it's not done for insetting. Insetting is a bonus of, right. of uh, the other benefits, for, obviously, for planting trees. And how long have you been doing some of these practices? Uh, I came back to the farm 11 or 12 years ago and uh, it's been a flurry of activity probably in in that period of time. And have you seen any changes on the farm in that time since implementing some of these things? Uh, I was pretty startled at how quickly the the, the creek zones uh, started to look significantly better and uh, happier stock now that there's more shade available in, in all of the paddocks. Some paddocks were missing a little bit. I think another thing that's been mentioned a few times already in the conference today is that um, there's a lot of confusion around carbon and farming. Would you agree with that? Do you think it's kind of a confusing space for producers and farmers to get into? Yeah, it is a confusing space. I spend a lot of time with different groups of farmers and it's usually the issue they want to talk about and there's a lot of misconceptions because there's you know, quite different topics and issues to consider. Uh, selling carbon credits uh, is, is you know, one, almost topic, one topic that's quite different to... Uh, simply understanding your own carbon footprint. Uh, and the metrics around understanding your carbon footprint, you know, can be confusing as well. The industry goal of or aspiration of becoming carbon neutral, I think, has been interpreted by many farmers as something that they've got to achieve on their farm, when I think the reality is quite clear that that's probably not going to happen. So, yeah, it's obvious that there's confusion abounds. 
And I guess when it comes to measuring your carbon on your farm, you know, how difficult of a process has that been? For us, it was really easy because we were already doing business benchmarking, uh, which means we were collecting all the same data that goes into your carbon accounting tools. So it's it's the one carbon accounting methodology mostly used by red meat producers, the SBGAF tool developed by Melbourne University. Uh, and it is a lot of data. So if it's the first time you're doing it, there's, there's a lot of data to collect. Uh, the second and third time you do it, you're actually really well organised and it's quite straightforward. Does it add a lot to your workload? Uh, it does the first time. It's pretty stressful the first time because you've got to go hunting around for bits of paper or emails, um, kill sheets, market reports, statements from agents. Uh, your general financials so that's pretty daunting the first time you do it Um, but uh, you develop systems pretty quickly to say okay as I go I'm going to be organised and I'm going to have this spreadsheet that keeps my sale information and this spreadsheet that that keeps an inventory of my fodder stocks things like that. What's the goal for for your farming business? Our goal is not to sell ACUs but to, to really understand our footprint and be able to make claims about the carbon intensity that goes into our beef production so that when we're marketing a truckload of steers to whichever aspect of the supply chain we can say uh, we produce this we use this much carbon to produce this load of steers so that buyer can then decide if uh, our steers present uh, or offer better value than maybe another producer that they're that they're talking to are you already finding a demand for that with your clients no, not yet. Um, we're seeing some early days with, with projects with coals, uh, which we're not part of, but uh, we think it's probably the writing on the wall. And, uh, you know, our, 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 one of our beliefs in the business is to... A way we can reduce risk is to make sure our product is as marketable as possible. We do that with things like our breed composition, getting intramuscular fat in our, in our genetics. And another thing we'll do is just be making sure that we can market our cattle with a carbon footprint. What's your best advice for farmers, producers, particularly maybe in red meat and beef as well, uh, who are looking, to, looking into carbon farming? What's the best bit of advice you could give them? Uh, there's some really great tools developed by MLA. Uh, the Carbon 101 courseware is something that's pretty easy to step through. Agriculture Victoria has got a great project which we're a part of the pilot for, which is reducing on-farm emissions. Don't be worried or concerned that you feel like it's confusing um, or, or a bit theoretical um, just uh, just just be on the on the on the bus on the journey early so that um, you're ahead of the game if we if we start to feel pressure on us it's Julian Carroll who's a beef producer from Mudjigonga speaking to Annie Brown about the carbon footprint of his farm still to come urging more young women into science careers And three new varieties of avocados. We'll take a look at that, plus a check on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Michael Dallafontana. Thank you, Tony. The Federal Health Minister is encouraging Australians to check their medicine supplies following a major recall of cough syrups and lozenges. The Therapeutic Goods Administration has advised people to throw out 44 products containing the cough suppressant known as Falcadine. Anaesthetists have been asking for the recall due to a link between the medicines and an increased risk of anaphylactic reaction to other medications during surgery. State Parliament question time has been dominated by the scrutiny of two government 
government MPs. Greens leader Cassie O'Connor pushed to ask questions directly of Speaker Mark Shelton after details emerged under right-wing information about a government grant given to a community hall he's a committee member of. Ms O'Connor's push to suspend question time was rejected. Labor also ramped up its attacks on Racing Minister Madeleine Ogilvie after she revealed she knew the former Racing Tasmania boss had been sacked when she issued a release saying he was moving to Sydney to be closer to his family. The US warns or the US wants Iran to investigate suspected poisoning attacks on schoolgirls with dozens of hospitalizations since November. And Australia has officially backed a push by Vanuatu to get the International Court of Justice to issue an opinion on climate change. More news at one o'clock. Now time to check the latest on the weather. Michael Gonway joins us from the Bureau. Good day, Michael. G'day, Tony. How are you going all right? Yeah, doing well, thanks. Yeah. Any rainfall of note anywhere? Uh, we had a little yesterday in the west, but uh, not much else elsewhere. The top was 17 millimetres at Lake Margaret, 16 nearby at Mount Reed and Zinn, scored 10 millimetres. There's been a few light falls, of only up to a millimetre around since 9am this morning, about the west and far south. But um, yeah, that's all. That's it. OK. Yeah. Now, the outlook for the next few days. What can we expect, Michael? Yeah, the, these uh, showers will ease off as a high-pressure ridge builds over the state later tonight. And um, tomorrow's looking like mainly fine throughout the whole of the state, uh, just, just partly cloudy, lovely day, really. And um, that's as the high-pressure moves over tomorrow. And on the weekend, the high-pressure system will move out towards the east, start getting northeasterlies on Saturday. And, e- and towards the end of the day into the evening, they could get a few showers in the north. But it looks like on Sunday a few troughs come through, series of troughs. They will bring some showers mainly in the north and the west of the state. Um, and then the the longer term for next week from Monday to Friday is looking like westerly winds with a with um, just embedded trough, uh, um, quite a few embedded troughs in that and also a strong cold front coming through late Tuesday which, uh, which will uh, really uh, drop the temperatures down quite a bit. Okay, so heading into autumn, then winter, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we know where we're going. Uh, warnings, what's what's uh, the situation there? It's pretty pretty um, mild at the moment, but there's a few strong wind warnings around uh, just for this westerly wind that's going through. Um, the, the warnings for eastern and southern waters from Wineglass Bay to Low Rocky Point today, and similarly tomorrow, just... Um, from Wineglass Bay uh, to South East Cape. So it's just coming back a little bit tomorrow to just the South East instead of the South West today. Okay. And the coastal waters and swell, what's happening there, Michael? Yeah, the wind's about today. We have westerlies at 15 to 25 knots. Um, they're going to be reaching up to 30 knots of the far south and lower eastern waters today. The winds tomorrow south to southwesterlies at 15 to 25 knots reaching 30 knots early about the southeast and lower east, and then winds 10, 10 to 20 knots throughout um, and east to southeasterly throughout as well, about the north in the afternoon, but it'll be staying to that south to southwesterly in the south of the state. The swells about in the west and south, we've got a south to southwesterly swell of three to four metres for both days. In the north, there's a westerly swell to one metre offshore. And in the east, we have a southerly swell of one to one and a half metres today and might get up to two metres, one to two metres tomorrow. And the wave riders? Cape Sorrel at the moment is four metres and Mariah Island is at 1.2. 
Terrific. Thanks for that, Michael. Thanks, Thanks, Dan. Get on you, Michael Conway, from the Bureau with the latest information for you on the Country Hour. Coming up, we'll look at a diverse group of women involved in science and technology gearing up for a big, big year in the classroom to inspire the next generation of scientists and also a couple of new varieties of avocados. This week on Landline, flooding along the Darling River. Three years ago, we were in a solid drought, so we had no water in the river. <laughs> exactly opposite. But, you know, that's, that's living on the land. And the Tassie wool grower doing it her way. I kind of have given up on caring about what people think. That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. A diverse group of women involved in science and technology are gearing up for a big year in the classroom to inspire the next generation. Food scientist Dr Samantha Sawyer is one of 60 superstars of STEM this year. She told Larissa Smith it's important women continue to smash stereotypes of what a scientist or an engineer looks like. For me, it was really about curiosity. So when I was young, I was asking questions all the time and wanting to find the answers to those questions. And I was really lucky because I had a really positive role model at home. My dad was a mathematician and he always encouraged me to ask those questions and seek those answers so that we can learn more about the world and understand more about the world. And one of the big things around, say, the Superstars of STEM program is really about having those diverse role models. Because I do know that while I had a very positive role model at home who always encouraged me to pursue what I was interested in, because he knew that if you're interested in something, you're going to succeed, I know that not every child, not every student has that same opportunity. And so that's where this program comes into it, where we can be those diverse role models and positive role models to encourage students to pursue a career in STEM and to break the perceptions that currently exist. Such as when people think about scientists, they think of someone like Albert Einstein, who is an older white male in a white lab coat. Most of us are not that. How early should schools be teaching STEM in the classroom? As early as possible. Kindergarten, get them to question the world, get them to look at the food that they're eating and to question, well, where does that come from? How is it grown? What goes into it? How is it processed? Or if they look at, for example, their clothes, where does that come from? How is that produced? What's the chemistry behind that? Because our entire world is built on STEM and it complements everything else that we've got, like culture, like our history, all of that makes up the entire world that we have. We can't forget about the STEM component of that. So what's planned for you as a superstar of STEM uh, in terms of what you can provide the curriculum in Tasmania this year? As part of the superstars of STEM, over the next two years, I will be visiting multiple schools to help engage students and to kind of get them interested in science. So I will be targeting high schools around Tasmania, so in the north, in the south, as well as in the northwest. And as part of that, for example, this year in Science Week, I'm looking at different experiments that we can do with kids to kind of understand more around food. What have you been working on that 
perhaps students at a tertiary level might be interested in learning about? So, for example, we've been working with raspberries and looking at instrumental measures for how we can measure that quality so that you don't always have to rely on a human sensory panel. Basically, it's a piece of equipment with sensors that replicate the human taste buds. So there's a sensor for sourness, there's a sensor for sweetness, astringency, bitterness, saltiness and umami. And so it does look at the initial taste but also the aftertaste as well. And so being able to instrumentally characterise different food types, we can make sure that we minimise batch-to-batch variations, we can blend things so that you've got consistency and at the same time we can start to develop consumer segments in the sense of we know that some people have preferences for some of those tastes. Some people may prefer things that are sweeter or sour or more stringent and then we can develop products and accelerate that kind of food innovation to be able to create products that, are, that will appeal to that customer segment. Segment. You can see companies taking on this technology to make sure that they've got a consistent product, a more consistent product. Definitely, because from an agricultural sense, there is variation every year. There's variation within a season, there's variations um, year on year, depending on what the weather is like. And so, yet at the other end, consumers want a product that's consistent every time. Like Coke, people open a bottle of Coca-Cola and they want it to be exactly the same every single time they taste it. And so that's actually quite a big challenge for the food industry because in our raw materials, like berries, like potatoes, there's always that variation. And so being able to measure this instrumentally means that we can start to make it more consistent or at least to pull out and minimise some of those differences that could lead to a rejected product on the other side. Are you heartened by the number of girls that are becoming more interested in STEM? Very much so, but there is still more to do because when you look at the statistics, you can see that as you get higher up, whether that's in academia or industry and corporate companies, that the female representation and non-binary people, representation of non-binary people, drops off. So, for example, at the level E which is the highest academic level, it's about 13% women. Whereas when you look at, say, companies and industry, women at that CEO level, it's only about 11%. And these are stats from 2021. That is not that long ago. There is still more to be done. And it is great that we're starting to see a lot more students that are from diverse backgrounds, whether that's gender, whether that's identities, and ethnic backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, experiences, there is still more that we have to do because until those stats reflect what we're seeing coming, starting to come through that pipeline, it means we're still getting attrition. That's Dr Samantha Sawyer, one of the superstars of STEM and a lecturer in food science at the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture, talking there to Larissa Smith about getting more young women interested in a career in food science, ag science, any science. Okay, move over, Hass. Get out of here, Shepherd. There are new kids on the block. Three new avocado varieties have landed on Australian shores in a bid to provide options consumers want. Lucy Cooper filed this report. 
Australia's largest grower of Kensington Pride mangoes, Manbaloo, has just signed the rights to three new avocado varieties that have come from New Zealand through its sister business, Manbaloo Fruit Company. Marie Picconi, owner and managing director of Manbaloo Fruit Company, says it's time to provide choice to consumers. It was a niche product in the early 1990s. And then there's been the huge proliferation of Haas all over the world with a few other minor varieties. Um, And if you look at other industries like the potato industry, tomatoes, apples, uh, there's never been, even mangoes, there's not always a reliance on just one or two varieties, one major dominating variety. And we've identified that there is room for other varieties in the avocado industry. So rather than stick with um, planting even more Hass when there's some situations where you know there's just too many Hass around, um, we wanted to offer customers and consumers um, a new experience. With the material now in Australia... Marie wants to plant out commercially on a pilot basis to assess the three different varieties in Australian conditions. The variety has never been commercially successful in Australia before. These varieties are very exciting because they're all the progeny of Sharwell. And Sharwell is a variety that was um, found and it was found in Australia in about the 60s or 70s. It's an absolutely amazing tasting variety, but it never... It never um, expanded hugely commercially because it was it's what we call a B-type flower and a B-type variety, which means that the flowering and the fruit set is temperature sensitive. These three new varieties, um, from all of our observation, appear to be A-type flowers, which means they're not temperature sensitive. So they've got all those beautiful charwool eating characteristics um, and it looks as though they've got, you know, really good yield characteristics, but they haven't got that setback of being very sensitive to low temperatures, especially um, during flowering. Hass is Australia's most popular avocado variety. So are we really ready to try something new? We do believe that consumers, the research shows that, yeah, sure, lots of people like Hass, but they are also quite, um, they're quite available to taste new flavours in avocados and these varieties have got a beautiful nutty buttery flavour. People don't always stick to exactly what they've always had. They look forward to something that's new. I mean that's that's a consumer trend. Let's go to the experts in the avocado space. The cafe owners who whip up fresh avocado toast for the latte sippers every single day. So our most popular food menu item would be definitely the avocado smash on sourdough. I think they just love it. It's um, it's a really healthy option, and we serve it with just a, re- a wedge of lemon, you know. So it's not overcomplicated with cheeses or anything. It's, it is what it is. It's all about the fruit. There's some days I sell out because uh, families are also getting it for their children as a healthy option instead of a ham and cheese toasty. The children are wanting, so you know, the smashed avocado and sourdough. That's Kelly Behrens. She owns the Tobruk kiosk at the Strand in Townsville. Her avo of choice is Hass, thanks to its creaminess and consistency. But she says she isn't stuck in her ways. Well, we're open to try anything. Like, if it's obviously going to be of the same quality and it's in season when the others aren't, we will definitely try it. Yeah. It's Kelly Behrens, Townsville Cafe, and ending that report from Lucy Cooper on the three new varieties of avocado that growers can grow. There's more on that story online at ABC Rural. 
be prepared for disruptions to the Tasman Bridge this Sunday morning, March 5th. The Run the Bridge Fun Run will be held Sunday morning between 6am and 10am. One lane of the bridge will be open for emergency service vehicles only. Expect disruptions and alterations to metro and airport bus services. Check timetables and plan ahead. And for updates, stay connected to ABC Radio Hobart. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Now, if you have horses, do you know much about the pasture they feed on and how good it is for them? Agronomist Emma Goodall is also a horse enthusiast with a Bachelor of Equine Science under her belt. She wants to develop a better system for horse pastures. Emma recently received $7,000 from the AgriFutures Rural Women Accelerator Grant Program, which will be used to help develop a ryegrass and pasture system that will help horses. Horses have a pretty bad reputation in agriculture as being turners, so turning a good paddock into a, ba- into a bad one. Uh, and there are a couple of factors that contribute to that. So horses themselves are selective grazers. They, they don't um, graze as efficiently as, say, sheep or cattle. Um, they tend to go through and pick out what is essentially the chocolate in a grass pasture and then leave the all bran and um, wait for their humans to come and fix it. My challenge is to try and stop horse paddocks being the, the worst paddocks in the district. Uh, and to do that, we need um, a few more grasses in the horse pasture mix that are appropriate and horse safe that still have good agronomic founding. So you're looking at a project to look at this issue. What are you going to work on? I'm actually looking to see if I can combine the great minds of somebody like Kentucky Equinery with one of the, the major seed companies who have novel endophyte technology to look to create a mycotoxin binder. Um, to suit a specific alkaloid profile um, produced by endophyte. So endophyte's a fungi that lives um, symbiotically with grasses. Um, unfortunately, they, they produce chemicals to protect the grass that they don't differentiate between a pest being a bug um, or a pest being a grazing animal. So um, there's a microtoxin binder and that is what you want to remove from those grasses? No, so it's actually about trying to match a mycotoxin binder to a specific endophytic alkaloid profile. So standard endophyte, which is the wild type endophyte that a lot of perennial ryegrasses have, and all species of animals, we see that produce heat stress and daggers. Novel endophyte for sheep and cattle um, has removed the you know the risk of either heat stress or staggers. Um, which reduces the, the overall impact, but that research has never been applied to horses. So um, this is an option to try and get a more agronomically sound grass. So the likes of DLF, who used to be Wrightson's, um, or Barrenbrook, um, they have an epoxy jantrum type endophyte either in the market or coming to market. Um, and I'm looking to try and match a mycotoxin binder to that specific alkaloid so that we can make the, you know, the leading ryegrasses horse safe um, which gives us some, some options to clean up paddocks. Ryegrass isn't the ideal species for horses in that it is quite high sugar, um, but it does give us some, some cultural control for weed in terms of its speed to establishment um, and capacity to you know, have a short rest and be grazed again. So it's, it's not a silver bullet, but it should hopefully be an improvement on great you know, forage weeds, which currently seem to populate horse paddocks. 
And how do you plan on doing that? Will it be a series of trials or, or lab work? How are you trying to do that? That's been one of the challenges. So this has been a, a bit of a dream that's been kicking along in the background for a while. Um, and I was recently awarded the AgriFutures um, Rural Women's Acceleration Grant, and that's actually about providing the professional development to go about setting up the structure to, to undertake this. So initially the challenge will be to get the, uh, the major parties in a room because horse people and horse industries don't necessarily uh, cross over well with commercial agriculture. So to be able to get the, the respective parties in the room um, to then work out what we would need to do in terms of either tweaking existing technology, so there are mycotoxin binders on the market at the moment, can we tweak those to, to fit um, the agronomic profile of one of the epoxy jantrum types? Or is it a case of we need to you know, go right back to basics and run through a full animal feeding type trial, um, which changes the, the dollar value quite significantly? Um, and then looking at, you know, can we in fact commercialise a package of agrass with a novel endophyte, with a mycotoxin binder, and bring that, bring that to market as a commercial package? That's agronomist Emma Goodall speaking there with Emma Field about her work to develop better pastures for horses. Well, from horses to bulls now, some major bull sales coming up in Tasmania. Bull prices around the country have been high for quite some time, with top-tier animals going for six figures. But why pay that much for a bull, and will prices stay high this time around? Megan Hughes has the story. When the first bid on the bull Ashley Kirk had his heart set on was for $100,000, he knew he'd be in for a fight. But the central Queensland stud owner prevailed, partnering with another local Brahmin stud to place the winning bid at an eye-watering $200,000. Yeah, we were lucky enough. Yeah, it only takes two to tango, but we were lucky to to secure him. Yeah, the the first bid for him was $100,000, so um, that took people back, and then, yeah, we came in at the end and lucky enough to to get him at that price. Now the bull named Fairy Springs Capitalist calls Rockley Brahmins at Maura in central Queensland home. And a bull at this price is expected to pull its weight. Mr Kirk has big plans to cash in on his investment. So straight up the run we we collected him. Yeah we got good quality semen, very good quality semen out of him. So we've naturally mated him. He's done a season and then we've also used him in IVF and we've got confirmed pregnancies coming by him out of some of our have top producing cows so um, very excited yeah we'll have calves in the next probably four four to six six months so yeah it's all coming together and we'll hopefully get a return on investment with him. And in terms of the semen itself will you just keep that for you know your operation or is that something you'll look to sell and potentially export? Yeah there's certainly yeah potential export we'll keep it domestically ourselves and and just monitor that as we go um certainly no plans in the near future to to um sell any domestically but internationally yeah it would love to um yeah get that bull on the market and 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 target some of those countries like the US and South Africa and countries that yeah are looking for homozygous polygenetics but why spend that much on a bull in the first place? Mr Kirk explains what he was looking for. Very good temperament, being homozygous polled, good underline, structurally correct, good bone, it was the right colour, good testicles, good semen. So he's yeah ticked, ticked a lot of boxes that we were looking for. Um, the mother had had on a third calf, so that was important to us, the fertility side as well. 
just a complete package, we thought. Another CQ stud owner, Annalie Godwin, runs Black Label Brangus and works for her parents' operation, Godwin Cattle Company. Together, they bought Brangus Bull Lunar Roads for $110,000. For my side of things, I'm just going to use him as a stud sire over my cows. Um, we will eventually collect him, hopefully, and sort of see. We haven't really decided whether we'll sell semen yet. It's poss- definitely a possibility in the future, but... At the moment, we want to get our own calves on the ground, see how he forms, see how he goes, make sure everything's correct. We're just, yeah, just excited to have him around at the moment. Talk me through the, you know, trying to figure out the decision whether or not to to sell his semen. Would you be looking at domestic sales or or exporting? Uh, Potentially both. Um, Export is something that I myself don't know much about. It's something I have to do a bit of research on, but to think about... We obviously want people to use these genetics and enhance their own herd, but we just want to see how he goes himself. We want to get some females on the ground by him. You know, we don't want to flood the market with his genetics because that will potentially decrease his value. We want to, yeah, we want to get the first bulls out there sort of thing, not to be selfish, and then, yeah, potentially from there, see how they go and then sell his semen from there. Black Label Brangus owner Annalie Godwin. Selling semen can be incredibly profitable. Recently, semen from Australia's most expensive bull sold for $24,000. Bull prices themselves have had a pretty good run. Between 2018 and 2022, they rose 70 to 80%. Rabobank senior analyst Angus Gidley-Baird said cattle prices have dipped since their massive highs, but it's uncertain whether bull prices will follow suit. Quite a dramatic drop in cattle prices, you'd probably have to expect that the same sort of sentiment would flow through to bull prices and we'll see prices ease off. But I think it'll be a really interesting thing to watch and see it how, how it unfolds with um, you know producers out there that have probably been able to sell cattle at higher prices and whether or not the income in their pocket means that they'll still be chasing bulls. Whether we see a bit of a, a separation and we see some of those you know, the really good bulls continue to be chased and, and high prices for them. But then the lower quality ones, maybe there's less demand for them. There's, you know, question around are producers going to look for the same number of bulls or maybe do they pay the same but maybe buy a couple less bulls? I think we're still a bit of a way off in terms of the herd rebuild. That's still on track. And obviously with rain through Queensland in January and February, that might encourage a few people Queensland to, to consider what they need to do for the genetics of their herd too. That's Rabo Bank Senior Analyst Angus Gidley Baird ending that report from Megan Hughes on bull prices and uh, what's happening in the bull industry and more on that story you can head to our ABC Rural website or our ABC Rural Facebook page picture of the $200,000 bull and as we say some major bull sales coming up in Tasmania this month so we'll keep an eye on them for you as well. Uh, Big prices last year. Don't know what they'll do this year. Anyway, ABC Rural Online is the place to go. That's our program for today. Another country hour after midday tomorrow.